History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge, find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, you're listening to History Happened Everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir, and I am here in the HHE studio with the delightful, the ever-gorgeous, it's Mr. Peter Goddard. Watcher. Watcher. Yeah, I'm trying to bring Watcher back. I think it's been a long time since we've heard that on the streets of I London. genuinely haven't heard Watcher in a long time. Right, it's, uh, it's time to come back. So everyone out there, start using Watcher, please. I'd uh, appreciate it. What's up? I'm going to bring that one back. Remember that? <laughs> oh, I remember that for a brief and very seemingly, seemingly interminable moment. <laughs> it got kind of ruined by David Brent, though, didn't it, in the office? Yeah, that's What's true. up? <laughs> but what is up? What is up? Uh, well, it's been another week of the yeah. nights drawing in. Uh, I'm feeling all right about it, though. We're back to dark nights for recording, aren't we? It feels more appropriate to be in the dark recording. It's more theatrical. Exactly. The lights are down, the crowd are hushed. Right. I mean, I've got my makeup on, the tights are high up my waist. <laughs> I don't know why I have that. We're for straying a, into your hobbies now. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever performed on stage? I have performed on stage, theatrically <laughs> and comedically. Oh, of course. Yes, yeah, so I had a brief stand-up. and uh, not particularly glorious stint as an open mic stand-up. Although, I should note that on one occasion yeah. uh, in the fine town of Norwich, I was paid £10 for a gig. <laughs> right. Therefore, I am a professional comedian. And £10 back in 1833 was a huge sum of money. Well, it did barely pay for the oats for my horse, Ryan. <laughs> I think we need to go back to more vaudeville style of entertainment. Variety on Variety. Stage. You want a juggler followed by a unicyclist followed by a joke merchant followed, followed by, by a violin playing an opera right? Exactly. That's exactly what I want. Okay, well. What would be your vaudevillian act? So I always had a hankering to have a hyena act. Uh, where I mean, I, I wasn't have, expecting a hyena I, I know you weren't expecting, but this has always genuinely been something in the back of my mind. <laughs> this is genuine. Uh, You're being super serious and right the, now. They would perform tricks like dogs, but they'd be hyenas, and ideally you'd end with them stacked as a hyena pyramid. You're being dead serious about this, aren't you? Like that, <laughs> I thought you about gave, this. You gave no time to think about that. That was just straight off off the, off your head. This is part of my repertoire of things I will definitely do one day. What Start my hyena act. act. <laughs> pyramid of hyenas. Well, I don't think I can beat the pyramid of hyenas as a as a vaudevillian act. Well, I spent ten years thinking about this, so it's not yeah. surprising. But if you had to come up with something off the top of your head, well, off the top of my head, I think I'd probably go a magician. I have you down as one of those magicians whose ineptitude is part of the act. I think you'd be a brilliant bad magician. Right, like my ineptitude is an act on this show. Correct, it definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> why, are you, why are you saying it like that? No, I think you'd be a superb magician. I is mean, this your I'd be, I'd be awful at it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Go on, do me a trick. What's your favourite trick? I don't like card tricks. I don't like rope tricks. Metal rings, I think, are stupid, so I'm not doing any of that. Okay. So I think I'm probably just left... Just you and not, It's me. <laughs> a bunch of flowers. <laughs> this is going to be a very quick act, isn't it? You Pulls know, a bunch of flowers from out of his sleeve and then bows and walks <laughs> off. And then, thank you very much. I've been Ryan Weir. Good night. Next up, a pyramid of hyenas. <laughs> I'll be happy. Yeah. I'll be happy to follow that act with my hyenas for what it's worth. That sounds good. Well, there you go. Right, we have a podcast to yeah, do. Yeah, talking of magic acts. Yeah, <laughs> we're making something out of nothing. We're going to pull out the hat for this one. <laughs> Uh, well, look, I don't remember what it was that uh, that you're going to be talking about today. So why don't we remind me and potentially other people on what the Dursalator gave you? Yes, let's relive the ordeal. Okay, here we go. Okay, let's hit the button and find out what your country's going to be. Do it! Okay. And your country is... Jordan. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> so let's find out what your time period is. This is going to be critical. <laughs> Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. 
It's the paleogene. What? 42 million BC. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, well, I guess it all hinges on the topic, really, Just, doesn't it? Well, because if it's sport, you might, <laughs> you might have some issues. <laughs> the topic is. Oh my gosh! The early bird. Well, that's uh, acceptable. Oh, this is going to be tough for you. Oh my lord! <laughs> all right, so. Easy, straightforward. Uh, yeah. Jordan, Jordan, yeah. wherever that is, yeah. um, in the Paleogene, which whenever that was, yeah. and uh, the early bird. That's something I do know. It's, uh, it's a saying, isn't it? The early bird catches the worm. Correct. So I'm never sure what to take from what the real meaning of the early bird catches the worm is, because on the one hand, the early bird it implies get up, get about, and you will uh, get yourself success. Don't be lazy. Yeah. But I mean, there's also an early worm in this saying, which implies that if the worm had stayed in bed, he would never have been eaten. So. Maybe Maybe, you know, are you the bird or the worm? That's the question. Oh, I see. So if it, it the, the expression should be the early bird catches the worm, but only if the worm isn't acting like an early bird. No, he catches because the worm's got to be early as well, presumably. Yeah, but it's only being early because it's heard the expression, the early bird catches the worm. Exactly. Oh, no, wait, it wouldn't go out if it heard the expression. No, he'd stay in bed. I think it's like... It's a paradox. It's the early bird catches the worm. So get up and at him unless you're a worm. Yeah, don't tell the worms about <laughs> this expression. <laughs> So yes, the early bird. I mean, fortunately, I think that may have been a bit of a lifesaver in terms of this episode, but we right. will reveal all shortly. Okay, well, look, I'm going to sit back in my seat. I'm going to sup on my drink. All right, my words of intelligence are going to flow over you. You're going to learn many things. Firstly, you're going to learn about Jordan, though. It's uh, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Uh, so I would imagine you're wondering what a Hashemite might be. I am. Uh, the Hashemites are the, the house of Hashim. That's the royal family name. So the Hashemite kingdom is the kingdom run by the, the family, the Hashim family. Okay. Uh, of Jordan, and they've ruled that since 1921. Oh, okay. So it is in the Middle East. That's the block of land that kind of sticks down between the northeast tip of Africa. Right. Uh, and then you've got the Asia on the other side, on the So sort of sandwiched side. between your, um, your Indias and your Kazakhs. Exactly. Your and Stans. it's got, uh, and to the north of it, it's got Turkey running into Europe as well. So it's right in the middle of things, in okay. the Middle East, unsurprisingly yeah. named. And it's, uh, yes, it's bordered by Syria, it's bordered by um, Israel and the Palestinian territories, it's okay. bordered by Saudi Arabia. Ooh. That's where we're at, the Middle East. Okay. So well, what's the geography of Jordan like? Like, picture it for me. What, is it, what, is it, what does it look like? Is it desert? There is a lot of desert. You've seen Lawrence of Arabia wobbling through the desert on the I mean, that's like hazy proper sun desert. In a, yeah. with a camel. So there's a lot of desert. It's, it's mostly flat desert plateau. There's some hills, kind of light greenery hills. Uh, I think more or less, if you think every biblical epic you've ever, <laughs> you've ever seen, there's bits of sort of slightly scrubby hills and not okay. lush forests particularly, not mountains, but rocky okay. environment like that. Gorges. Uh, definitely, or a wadi, as they're known. Gorgeous gorges. Gorgeous gorges all over the place. It does have a little attachment to the Red Sea. That's its little, it's got a little bit of coast there. Okay. Uh, but mostly, well, we'll talk about the borders in a minute, but mostly it's uh, inland. Right. It has capital of Amman, which is its biggest city and cultural centre. So it's not one of these sneaky countries that has a capital that's some regional nothing, like New York and uh, Washington. And size-wise, I know you're wondering, 89,000 square kilometres. That is about 16% the size of a France. So you'll get six Jordans to a France. Wow, okay. All right. I don't know why I thought it was bigger than that. I think possibly because it's next to Saudi Arabia, which is much, much, much bigger. Yeah, so okay. you kind of look at that map and you see a big country and you think countries around there are big, but this one's uh, fairly weak. For, well, okay. I mean, it's still substantial, but yeah, uh, it's got about 10 million people in it, or 10 and a half million people. Uh, and it has a national anthem. Have a listen. Strong start. There's a lot of jump scares in it. It is. Is that it? That, that's it. That I, feels like the introduction to one. I couldn't, I, I was like, well, where's the song? Where's the rest of the song? <laughs> no, that's it. There you go. I found that highly disappointing. Sorry, Jordan. Okay, well, there you go. It's been occupied for a very long time, Jordan, unsurprisingly, if you think biblical, that's uh, this East, kind right? of area, Middle East. 
since the Stone Age, actually, there have been people there. Um, it's been part of loads of empires as a consequence. Yeah. I'm not going to go through them all. We've done that for other places, and it's not that interesting. Is it safe to say early places. man was there? Uh, there's always an early man to be had. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't discovered by the Portuguese at any point. That's the only thing oh. I can surprise you with. It became part of the Ottoman Empire, which okay. a lot of places did, as we know. And we know that the Ottoman Empire essentially uh, collapsed after World War One, But it was also mm. part of the Great Arab Revolt, which was an attempt to overthrow the Ottomans. And the British supported this revolt. And they said, we will support a massive Arab state. Mm. This is Lawrence of Arabia territory. Oh, OK. So Lawrence of Arabia was helping the Arabs rise up against the Ottomans. That's what that story was all about. Uh, and then the way that ends is rather tragically that the British totally renege on that promise to support a big Arab state and in fact they collaborate with the French and they just carve the area up into spheres of influence and then if you look at Jordan on a map you will see it is a a very weird shape it's got this kind of big square bit sticking out at the top and then another big bit sticking out at the bottom all these very long straight lines yeah and I think we've seen this before in other territories where you've got lots of long straight lines that usually means some European somewhere has drawn lines on a map on a map that was the, that's it. the beginning of a country and that's exactly what happened here in in 1916 with the Sykes-Picot Agreement. The French and the British just went, right, that's a country, that's a country, that's a country. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So I just that... wonder what it's like if you're living in that area. Does someone just come and tell you you don't live in that area now? Like if you're if that line now goes just outside of your village? I think this, for the smaller villagey areas, this is kind of one of the challenges I've read some people say there is, that occur in Afghanistan, which is that you don't feel like you are part of Afghanistan anyway. You have your community yeah. and your tribe or your villages that you connect with and afghanistan as a concept doesn't really have any relevance to you so i suspect it was quite a lot like that similar right because it wasn't a hugely inhabited area exactly you you go out and you do your thing and someone goes you're jordan now and you go okay fine (laughs) yeah i think it's much more of a a problem for people who are in the urban areas and uh, especially the ruling class type people in the upper middle classes so suddenly oh i'm jordanian well now i can do trade easily with britain rather than france so those people the sort of international the trading the upper middle class are probably much more affected by it all. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the British and the French carved it up and created the Emirate of Transjordan in 1921. And then in 1946, it became an independent state and was called Jordan. It actually be called, it was called Jordan a little bit before that, but basically, 46, Jordan is an independent state as we know it today. Okay. So it's technically a constitutional monarchy, but it's really heavily influenced by the king, who has a lot of executive and legislative powers. So we're a constitutional monarchy, but if the queen tried to do half the things that the king of Jordan is allowed to do, she wouldn't not get very far i don't think and the king is abdullah il bin al hussein that's today's king uh, he was uh became the king it was king hussein of jordan before that and this new guy apparently would do incognito visits to government departments because he's not just a king he's kind of ruling the place as well uh, and he said of his visits the bureaucrats are terrified it's great. Oh, it's great. Okay. <laughs> so he's having a good time, clearly. So he has powers, does he? He can he can sort of veto stuff. He can do like, stuff, hey, yeah. He's ruling should... the country in a way that our queen really doesn't. Right, and uh, down to, you know, we should put a new motorway in. He's like, nah, I don't think so. Uh, I'm not sure. I think he's sufficiently powerful that I don't think he is planning urban renewal, but if he said no to something, I think that would be very problematic. Okay, so like he's he's well-versed in what's happening and seems, is involved in seems government to be. policy. But as a result... Well, not as a result, but one of the things that is that Jordan is known as is it's known as one of the more stable countries in what is quite a turbulent area, as you can imagine, with mm. the Israelis and Egyptians and Syria and Iraq and Iran around. You know, when did you last hear about Jordan in in the same way as you hear war, terrorism, and all of those things? No, but it's it's kind of amongst it, isn't it? Exactly, it's right in the middle of the that yeah. area, and yet it's this it's an oasis of stability. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's curious, isn't it? And I did try to find you some famous Jordans, and apart from the fact that I had to pick through a lot of Nike Air stuff and oh, yes, <laughs> various other bits and pieces, they didn't seem to have a lot of pop cultural icons because the first one I got was Moses. Right. <laughs> the second was King Herod the Great. <laughs> From Jordan. All right. And then I got a massive list of members of the Jordanian royal family. Right. There wasn't really a lot in the way of celebrities. Uh, I did find someone called Kasim, Kasem G, who I guess is a YouTuber of some kind. Okay. It wasn't rich pickings for famous Jordanians I'll be honest alright so well if, it, if you're listening Jordanians there's there's a gap in the market get yourself famous yeah for sure because you could have been on this podcast straight to the top of the list <laughs> uh, but one of the other things it has you're talking about the the climate and the sorry the geography of the place yeah. it has the Dead Sea in it it's oh. uh, the Dead Sea so this was 
considered the world's first health resort. King Herod the Great used to go there, apparently. It's uh, got lots of minerals in, and it's the one that you can't sink in. You get in it and you float. Float. Because it's got so many minerals and salts in the water that you become relatively much more buoyant than you would be in normal water. So you just bob around and you don't, you can't sink in it. And it's dead because presumably there's no fish in it because of it's so salty. Salt. Yeah, it's got some bacteria and some fungus, but it has no fish or anything that you would go, ah, look, there's life in that. <laughs> yeah, oh, look at that fungus. Yeah, and is it an actual sea or is it a lake? It's a lake, I think, but I'd need to check that. Lady of the Internet, please clarify. Hello, this is the voice of the Internet. The Dead Sea is a lake which is 50 kilometres long, 15 kilometres wide and 300 metres deep. Water flows into the Dead Sea from the River Jordan. The water is trapped in the lake and forced to evaporate under hot and dry weather conditions. Large quantities of evaporated water leaves behind salt and other minerals. Over time this build-up has resulted in approximately 37 billion tons of salt and a salinity of 34.2% which is 10 times saltier than the ocean. Unfortunately the lake is rapidly shrinking, with nearly half the surface area having disappeared over the past 100 years. Thank you. Uh, you can drown in it, apparently, but only if you sort of flip over. <laughs> oh. So you don't stink, but if you're not paying attention. Drinking that much salty water, though. Yeah, there's no way to go, is it? Oh. You're still you're still thirsty at the end of all that. Yeah, <laughs> but if you had mouth ulcers, they'd be gone in a second. Canker sores, I think they call them in the States. They do, they do. And if you've got any cuts or abrasions on your skin when you go into the Dead Sea, mm. you will be made very aware of them. It's like an all-over... You know when you use hand sanitizer and it turns out you've got a little paper cut that you oh, weren't aware yeah. of and then you're suddenly very aware of it? It's like that, only all over. Other famous things, it's got a city called Petra, called the Red Rose City. It's this kind of large city of really ancient buildings carved out of a kind of pink rock. It's a UNESCO world heritage site mm. and was voted one of the new seven wonders of the world in 2007 no way yeah it looks really awesome uh, and there's also an area called wadi rum so a wadi i mentioned earlier that's basically a, a valley and this wadi is uh it's got this really mars-like landscape it's a red desert and rock in the 2000 the film red planet it featured as the surface of mars in the film mission to mars in 2000 it featured as mars in the film last days on mars in 2013 it featured as mars wow okay. in 2015 it was used in the mars to look like this place looks a lot right. like Mars. <laughs> so when NASA goes to like fake the Mars landing, that's where they're going to be. That's where for they'll sure. have been. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you'll know. You'll know that uh, you could just compare it to previous Mars films, basically. <laughs> yeah. And if you can get it all to line up, you'll know. That's interesting because often I do watch those films and think, I wonder where they filmed this because it definitely looks like on location rather than on set. And it turns out it's in Jordan. Exactly. So. As you, for all your Mars needs. I just figured that they would just apply a colour filter and just do it in any old rocky area. I thought just that too. Add red to it. It is an incredible landscape. So that's Jordan. Middle Eastern, deserty, calm. Sounds good. Sounds interesting. Right. So now let's talk time. Right. So that's the place. So I've now got to orient you in time. And this is going to be quite complicated, but I think it's useful. So we are going to visit the Paleogene. Right. So what even is the Paleogene? What is the Paleogene? So it's a geological time period. It's a period is a very specific word we're using here. Okay. So the history of the Earth is divided into essentially chapters with subchapters and subchapters. Okay. So the very biggest chapters are eons, and eon is the very longest span of time. Uh, we've only had four eons in the history of the entirety of the Earth. Cool. And the first of those is the Hadean, named after Hades. Right. So this is basically before rock what what so this is before the crust has formed so it's just all Earth, lava and it's all lava and blah there's lots of water apparently there's no oxygen at all uh it's a time when there's some kind of big impact that causes the moon to fall off wow so we're talking the very beginning of no wonder it's Earth. called the hades hadean right hadean yeah so then there's the archean eon which is where rocks make an appearance the crust cools so now oh, we've yeah. got rocks hurrah and you start to see some just single cell life really yep okay so rocks are useful then you need something to sit on so then the proterozoic eon is the next one that's when you start to get a bit of oxygen in the atmosphere and that's really good for life so now complex animals like jellyfish and trilobites start to appear right so there's no life on land still the atmosphere is just beginning to get the oxygen you need for life but uh, the oceans start to have a few tiddlers swimming around where's the water come from for the oceans uh the water starts i don't know where it comes from the but you start with lots of water in the atmosphere I guess. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And then it just rains back down once the lava so it's starts. cool enough, you can all 
condenser. So those three are also known as the Precambrian Super Eon, if you really want to do do your maths. So that's, that covers a mere 4 billion years or so, 4.6 billion to 542 million years ago. That's that Precambrian. Mm. You may have heard of that. And then the last of the eons this is the one we're still in today. So that's 542 million years ago to now, just now, mm. <laughs> is the Phanerozoic Eon. Uh, that's from Greek words phaneros, meaning visible, and zoe, meaning life. Nice. So visible life. This visible is when life. Things start to come. And what you'll see is all these are these huh. these time periods are kind of not arbitrary, but they they're usually bounded by some something significant. So big life starts to happen. Right. right. We'll call that an eon. It's not like a clock where it's twenty four hours, sixty minutes to an hour. It's let's divide this up because there's some significant beginning and end to the way the the planet looked or what was right. living on the planet, what we see. Do we know what the next eon will be? No, and I, I suspect says, we won't see it because one of the things that tends to characterise the, the transition is everything dies as a rule. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering if, like, the next eon like, is already bookmarked because some sort of extinction level. Well, no, because it can't be extinction. Even that wouldn't be it? an eon. It would no. be the level of eon type changes is the complete, planet disappears. Complete change of the atmosphere, something like that could happen. Right. So, or if you got knocked off course, I guess, and everything cooled down and, and the oceans boiled or something it's amazing to think that you know nobody won't be around to see any of that it will still happen but we'll all be long gone we will all be long long gone now some some people think that you need to break down time into smaller units than 550 million years okay (laughs) yeah so eons are broken into eras so our next thing is uh the category of the era Okay. So I'm I'm just I'm sort of zooming in on the yeah, paleogene yeah, yeah. here. So I'm only going to do the Phanerozoic eon, so the current eon. Now that's broken into three eras. The Paleozoic, that's 542 million to 250 million years ago. Yeah. Span it began with the Cambrian explosion. This is like loads of life starts appearing in the fossil record. Life forms in the oceans, it crawls up onto the land, you start to find plants, then invertebrates come on the land and then the vertebrates come on the land, so things with a spine. Uh, right. Things looking good for life generally. This um, is a good period of time. It was until the largest mass extinction in the history of life on earth which wiped out 95 percent of marine life and about 70 percent of land life what wait what 95 percent? so there could have been things that that crawled up onto the land that we wouldn't recognize they'd look totally alien to us because they never made it they, they didn't it's it's highly be no record of it it just disappeared and that's one of the things we're kind of going to be able it's to amazing. discuss which is just how little we have to go on and, yeah which makes you wonder how much we don't don't know and don't have so I think well yeah the fossil record is really kind of the only thing that we've got right yep exactly so the interesting thing is i don't think I, uh, there isn't a clear and agreed answer as to why everyone died out at the end of this period this is the permian extinction it's known as okay but climate change has been fingered as a potential uh, suspect. Everyone's always fingering climate change. I know, it's almost as if it's a catastrophic problem that needs to be addressed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the Paleozoic. Starts with a Cambrian explosion, yep. ends with the opposite. <laughs> An explosion of life and then the destruction of life. So then we're into the Mesozoic era, 250 million to 65 million years ago, just the other day. So basically, what happens after an extinction is a blank slate, right? So things can start evolving afresh. There's new space in the environment that hasn't been occupied by life. So other life, life... Uh, finds a way and this is known (laughs) as the age of the dinosaurs a world of wonder a world beyond imagination this planet of creatures evolving over millions of years becoming the earth's greatest living species. Welcome to the Age of the Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs become the dominant species in this age of the Mesozoic. So this is where you will find your Jurassic period, which is within the age of the the Mesozoic era. When you say the dominant species, that means there are other species other than dinosaurs? You know, whether it's fishes and birds type things. Of course, yeah. Um, I just figured that, you know, it's just dinosaurs running around everywhere, but of course that that wouldn't be the case. No, there's other, and there's small mammals as well. So in fact, dinosaurs started small and they kind of grew larger and larger as the the earth also became very humid and tropical. Steroids probably. Lots of lush green plants all over the earth and steroid trees all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. 
which helped the dinosaurs grow. The dinosaurs grow. There's little mammals scurrying around the place. The Jurassic, which I suspected you'd ask about, is right in the is the middle period of the Mesozoic. Okay, so that's the golden period, is it? It's where everything's milling about and roaring at each other and ripping each other apart with claws and teeth. Exacto. So then the Mesozoic era ends with what can only be described as a bang, a meteorific bang. Ah, okay. (laughs) Goodbye, dinosaurs. It's been fun. So to recap, the Paleozoic creatures arise and are wiped out. The Mesozoic dinosaurs arrive and are wiped out. And then finally, there's the Cenozoic. That's 65 million years ago to now. Wait, we're in the Cenozoic? Yes. Ah, okay, cool. No one ever talks about that. No, it's all happy new year, not happy new period. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. So the world starts to look like it as the continents have floated around to their current positions. Uh, This is known as the age of mammals. The dinosaurs being wiped out, same thing happens again. The mammals that was going around that managed to survive go, ooh, I can eat more, I can get out more. The climate changed drastically over this period of time, cools and becomes drier, have a bit of ice age situation. And basically, this is the era in which all species of life evolved to what they are today. So what we recognise, it's all been over that period, the Cenozoic. Pretty much, yeah. This is where the world as we know it really comes into place. So again, some people think 65 million years is too long to have a period. So we had eons to start with, and they have eras, and eras have periods. So the Cenozoic, that's the age that we're in now, is divided into the Paleogene period. Ah. That's the period we're after, 66 million years ago to 12 million years ago. This is the blossoming of life after the meteor that hits and extincts everything. It's the end of the hot and humid of the late Mesozoic and begins cooling and drying. Continents are drifting around. India crashing into Asia. The Himalayas are forming where the two countries smash into each other. Africa's moving north and nudging to Europe to form the Mediterranean Sea. And South America and North America are moving into each other as well. Coming together. So that's, uh, you know, on a geological level, what's going on uh, over those millions of years. So if I looked at the map then, it would be somewhat familiar. Yeah, yeah. I think it would would be changing, but you'd you'd get there. Right. And and it's quite interesting. I won't get into it too much because I don't know huge amounts about it. But what happens with some of these things is the continents, as they touch each other, then they block ocean currents. And that has quite an impact on how the heat is transferred through the currents of the seas and the ocean. So there's a, a passage, a Drake passage, I think it's called, at the southern tip of South America, which the opening of that passage meant there was then a current that could go through there. So these movements of continents change the way the currents can move, which change the way the heat moves around the, the Earth, sure. which changes the environments that the, everyone's living in. That's amazing. It's, That's really cool. It, it hadn't occurred to me that there's kind of, at that scale, what you're essentially doing is damming off at an area. It, well, yeah, it's, exactly. You just don't think it because it's so huge, but I guess that's what happens. No, and it would make it would make a difference. Butterfly effect and all that. You don't know what difference that could make around the planet. Exactly. Just run back on something. The dates for the Paleogene. 66 million to 12 million years ago. 66 to 12 million. So why did the Dursalator say 42 million years ago? I am going to guess it's the middle of it. I don't know, a okay. typical date. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's in there. It's not uh, outside of the realm. It's uh, So maybe it was just a date in the Paleogene. Right. I was just wondering whether or not there were other variations. Like, do, do, do other people have different timelines to that you know, they subscribe to? And... No, I don't think so. What, they, what okay. does happen is, as learning progresses sometimes someone will go actually this age doesn't really work so there was a quaternary tertiary and secondary or something and they're not used anymore so there's there's sort of versions that fall out of favor as new new findings and learnings come right i think that's what i meant yeah because like it does seem to be the case that we're we're, we're learning new things all the time and so just that that might have been the case that it shifted but yeah okay still yeah so that's the paleogene paleogene was followed by the neogene north and south america connect on the isthmus of panama and that cuts off the warm ocean currents from the pacific to the Atlantic and there's planetary cooling carrying on and then there's the quaternary period which is 2.58 million years ago to now which is basically just the other day geologically speaking so we're in the quaternary period we are in the quaternary period of, of the, the Cenozoic Cenozoic era they should be really putting this on like calendars and stuff well you would only be updating it every million <laughs> that's okay I just <laughs> I, it makes me feel comforted somehow okay well that's good so the quaternary is the time recognisable humans existed this starts with a jawbone that was found Found in Ethiopia right. 2.58 million years ago. Jawbone just crawling around trying to find a body. Going, what's up? <laughs> I don't feel like I'm enough. I feel incomplete. <laughs> yeah. So there are more divisions. It perhaps won't surprise you to learn. So I'm not going to go into them because I'm, I've got to my level. I've described where we are in terms of yeah. the paleogene. But there is, just to remind you, because I really struggled to remember which was which. Right. The eon is the absolute long 
yeah. period of time. That's broken into eras. Yeah. Very big. Eras are broken into periods. Yeah. Periods are broken into epochs. Yeah. Epochs are broken into ages. Okay. So let's work it out. So where am I now in time? Like right down from the smallest to the biggest. Smallest to biggest. Okay. So uh, I've only done this for now. So don't be asking any other, other categories. But okay. we are in Thursday, October 2021. Yeah. Right. Which is obviously the 2021 is just an arbitrary scale. So we're talking about geological time. Yeah. Doesn't care what your numbers are. Uh, the Megalayan age, the latest age of the Holocene epoch, which is the latest epoch of the Quaternary period. Right. Which is the latest period in the Cenozoic era. Right. Which is the latest era in the Phanerozoic eon. That's amazing. How cool is that? Megaline is an age in the Holocene. The Holocene's an epoch in the Quaternary. An epoch is the layer of rock and minerals. Now hear the tale of the earth. Yeah. The Holocene's an epoch in the Quaternary. The Quaternary is a period in the Cenozoic. A period's a bunch of layers of earth and rock. Now hear the tale of the earth. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Quaternary's a period in the Cenozoic. The Cenozoic's nearer in the Ferrozoic. And here is where you'll find the different fossils. Now hear the tale of the earth. Yeah. Um, all you need to do is just put today's date. That, that, that'll be fine. Oh, right. Sorry. So there we go. So we're talking about the Paleogene, which is the current era of the current eon, but two periods ago, if you like. Yeah. Uh, 66 million years to 12 million years ago. Okay. So what are we going to talk about? The early bird. So Ryan, how, what would you describe are the main features of a bird? uh wings wings okay. i think wings are essential yeah i would say a beak is essential yeah i would say claws okay uh eggs eggs okay i think some birds don't nest but i'm gonna go with nest anyway okay and i'm gonna go with feathers feathers okay and I'm going to go with birdseed. Birdseed, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. And like whistling, like birdsong. Whistling, birdsong, right. And... All right, that's enough. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. This is fun. Describe birds. <laughs> okay, that's a good list. That feels bird-esque to me. I'm yeah. sure there is a much more technical definition. Well, I'm just using that as a jumping off point to okay. see what we discover, right? So I'm going to take us to a little trip to the country of Jordan. <laughs> So this is sometime in the 30s or 40s. We're not really sure. Nobody actually was keeping good records of this event. But a railway worker who was working on repairs to the Amandamascus railway line near a place called Recefa found a two-foot-long tubular rock. Whoa. Okay. It's kind of a featureless thing, but I guess this railway worker knew there was something interesting about it because he obviously must have told people. Because uh, in 1943, the director of a nearby phosphate mine, a guy called Amin Kawar, yeah. bought this rock because it was, in fact, a fossil. Oh, nice. Okay. So this was a bone of some kind, hence its tub- tubular kind of look. Okay. Um, and at some point, this, again, nobody was writing things down, unfortunately, but the, the bone was sent to Paris, to the Museum National d'Histoire Naturelle, the Natural History Museum, where it was looked at by a paleontologist called Camille Arambourg. Bonjour. Good, good pronunciation, by the way. Well, thank you very much. Bonus points for that. Uh, now, this, this bone doesn't look like much. It's, it's about two feet long. Six, well, it's, in fact, I can tell you it's 620 millimetres long. Right. Uh, and it's a bone. looks like a bone you might draw, really. Okay. Uh, so, Arambourg identifies mm. it as a, a metacarpal of a large pterosaur. C'est le métacarpien d'un grand pterosaur. Wow. Oh, I feel like there are some words that are worth unpacking there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounded good. It did, didn't it? I liked it. Uh, yeah, it's a metacarpal. So, uh, <laughs> uh, do you know what a metacarpal is? Uh, leg bone. Okay, do you know what a metatarsal is? Leg ligament. It's a toe, it's a toe. Right, uh, so a, a metacarpal right. is a finger. Okay. But in a bird-like creature, the fingers kind of form the, the span of the wings. So it's kind of a, a wing finger, if you will. Oh, okay. Uh, and similarly, if you go to a whale, it's got similar in its fins. Right. So it's a finger bone but in humans, but it sort of expresses itself in different ways. So in this case, it's a bone from the wing. Okay. Okay, so a pterosaur. What is a pterosaur? A pterosaur is a flying reptile. 
Right. It's kind of bat-like wings. Cool. You may have heard of the pterodactyl. Yes, you I have heard yeah. of the Pteranodon. Yes, I have. Yeah. Now, I actually, until I did this, I had not realised they were two different things. They're both pterosaurs. So a pterosaur is a generic term for a flying lizard. Right. Uh, but a pterodactyl has teeth and a Pteranodon does not. Ah. There so you a go. Pteranodont have teeth. Yes, exactly. Well, that's, that's a good one way for all you budding paleontologists out there. Pteranodont have teeth. Although don't, don't is like teeth, which in French. Pteranodont don't. Which doesn't make sense. <laughs> Okay, well, now we've thoroughly confused the budding paleontologists <laughs> in the audience. We can only apologise. But, yeah. so Aaronborg thinks this is actually potentially something new. So not a pterodactyl, not a pteranodon, but something different. So in 1954, he writes a paper and he identifies this as an extinct genus, so type of Asdarkid. C'est un genre est un dastarcid. Asdarkid, what does that mean? So an Asdarkid is a lizardy bird, basically. It's a category of lizardy bird. A lizard bird? Yeah, it's from the Persian word Asdar, which is a mythology, a kind of dragon equivalent. Cool. So That makes sense. Yeah, so this is a category of dinosaurs. It's a pterosaur from the late Cretaceous period, so just before the Paleogene. And he names the creature Titanopteryx philadelphiae. J'appellerais cette créature la Titanopteryx philadelphiae. Cool. That means titan wing. Nice. Right? That's a great name. Yeah, that is a great name. Unfortunately, in the 1980s, somebody noticed there's already a black fly called Titanopterisk. Oh, no. Which rather pushes the Titan thing a bit, in my opinion. <laughs> if it's a fly. <laughs> it's a fly, right? Unless it's huge. So they, they, they changed the name of Titanopteryx to Aramborgiana. They named the right. dinosaur in the 80s after Camille Aramborg. It called, means Aramborg's giant. Aramborg's giant. Yeah, so okay. he's found this creature. They, they changed the name uh, in honour of Camille Aramborg, called it Aramborgiana, which means Aramborg's giant. So we all agree we found a new species or type of pterosaur. Yeah. It's not a pteranodon, it's not a pterodactyl, it's an Aramborgiana. How come it's not named after the railway worker? Well, because he's lost to history, as ever. The poor chap who digs it out is usually the one who gets lost and then... Because the, he found it. Uh, yeah, poor guy. But I guess he didn't know what he was onto, so he just gets lost to time. Uh. But here's the thing. Aramborg was wrong. Oh. Zut alors. It wasn't a finger bone at all. So in 1975, another paleontologist comes along, a guy called Douglas A. Lawson, and he concluded, <laughs> yeah. concluded the bone was not a metacarpal. But we, we find out in 1995, two more paleontologists come on the scene, David Martill and Eberhard Frey, great name, by the way. Yeah. They travel to Jordan. Uh, and in a cupboard in the office of the Jordan Phosphate Mines Company, <laughs> yeah. they find some other pterosaur bones. No way, right. Okay, so this guy was collecting them. Yeah, I guess so. So they found a, a little vertebra and a proximal and distal wing joints. Okay. Uh, proximal and distal being near and away from the torso. But anyway, they, they still couldn't find this original bone. It's gone. It's disappeared. So eventually in 1996, they tracked the bone down to the University of Jordan who'd been given it. And they still had it. Oh, Yay. Cool. So this was restudied by martin and frey and they concluded it's a cervical vertebra right. in other words it's a neck bone a two foot long neck bone. how can you confuse a, a two foot long bone in a neck right exactly so this tells us this is pretty unusual because you think of it's like a giraffe as, creature it is extremely like a giraffe actually it's basically a flying giraffe because it's got this very long neck extrapolating this two foot long neck bone but also it's going to be a very stiff neck because it's made up of these long bones rather than it being so much more giraffe neck and much right. less swan flexible neck because the length of these well yeah exactly right. so when we think of a bird with a long neck it's lots of little vertebrae but this is these long ones so much more you stick a pair of wings on a giraffe and lob it off a cliff and you've got yourself a amborgiana so if one bone was two feet long, how long was the neck then? If it had, if presumably it had more than one bone. Well, so from these fossils, they they believe this is one of the largest flying animals that's ever existed. They think it had a wingspan of somewhere between seven and thirteen meters. Thirteen meters a wing, like both wings. So are you aware of the small light aircraft, the Cessna? I guess. The standard light aircraft, right. two passengers. Right, right, right. But like if I was going to do like a flying lesson or something. Yeah, so that, that has a wingspan of 11 metres, which is smack in the middle of our estimate of what this, this bird's wingspan was. That's so insane. Essentially, it's a light aircraft that can fly and eat you. <laughs> and how do we know that they're getting this right? And, it, you know, they said it was a finger last time. How do they know 
it wasn't a leg bone, actually. So there's always the possibility that they're wrong. They, they think this creature walked on all fours. It was massive. It could fly for huge distances, like, like a light aircraft, essentially. Probably mostly on thermals rather than flapping a lot of wings okay, because yeah. of the energy it needed. And to I will get to your question, which is basically how do you know any of this? And especially from what you have is a little bit of neck and a finger. Right. And you go, right, this is this bird. So there's, there's a number of things they can do, right? So the wing finger of the Aramborgiana had a sort of jointy, shape that was exactly the same as the smaller pterosaurs okay so from that you confirm that you can can probably compare aspects of these two creatures so they also looked at the shape of the bone that you have and you can say ah okay so this metacarpal has a big surface area for ligaments to attach which suggests that if it's a big ligament area there's a big muscle involved and that big muscle is likely to be powering a big thing right in this case a wing right Okay. So the bone also has a sort of density and shape that suggests it's used, it has to resist certain forces. Science is great, isn't it? Oh, it's crazy what they do. I mean, and it could also, it, it, you find another bone and suddenly all this could change. This happens all the time in, in the world of paleontology, as I, <laughs> I found out. So then you, you know you can compare it to other pterosaurs and you've got much more complete skeletons of other pterosaurs. So you go, okay, so how does this, how do we deduce what this creature is like? So you go, well, if it's like that and it's, neck muscle is twice the size it's probably about twice the size of the thing we've got the full skeleton for yeah i mean i'm just thinking i'm two meters tall so a wingspan of 13 meters it's just enormous absolutely mind-bogglingly huge it's literally a flying giraffe only bigger than that (laughs) (laughs) wow Uh, and it has it's really curious i'd have to show you a picture of it but it's basically it looks like it's got this kind of quite small body it's got this enormously stiff neck and a giant head on the end right uh and sort of when it's flying it looks like a sort of bat kind of flying squirrel with these big membranes and when it's on it on the ground it's got this really awkward looking sort of folded up wing limb arrangement yeah you're sort of using your elbows as i'm guessing yeah folded up just oh it just looks super awkward but i guess uh it, it was quite happy with life yeah i guess so so the bones are found in Jordan. So what else can we figure out? Well, they've also found other bones that they believe to be the same species in North America, which tells us potentially that these this is a hugely widely distributed species. So you can find it all over the place. Well, yeah. I mean, um, I guess you could fly quite far on yeah. thermals. You can you can go a long way. They thought these guys could really travel. The world was basically hot and humid anyway. It had a much more common climate. There were palm trees growing in Greenland. Um, and, and you're not flapping, right? So you're not using calories. So that's you don't what need they to think, eat all the yeah. time. Yeah, so they can do all sorts of interesting things about the stress capabilities of the bones and stuff. But it's still all based on a bit of finger and a bit of neck, really. Sure, yeah, okay. Their behaviour, how they might have, even how they might have flown, there's there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of different theories. Taking off, for example... That, funnily enough, there was a very significant debate about that. Some people say that they couldn't possibly achieve the power ratio, the power-to-weight ratio to take off properly. (laughs) And there's real disagreement about whether or not they they could fly in some cases. Just throw yourself off a cliff or something. Well, yeah, but then one other guy modelled, like, swans and turkeys and their power-to-weight ratio, and he concluded for taking off if you do it very very quickly you can usually utilize the extra muscle energy with the anaerobic respiration and that he figured that if a turkey could take off probably this could take off cool so there's a ton of science there but it's also turkey science uh, yeah and it's but but it's a debate it's not Yes, this is the case, and we all know it. No, sure. Closed. This yeah. is ongoing. Yeah, you'd think for a creature <laughs> that large, we would find more of these bones. Well, because they're birds, they have light hollow bones, and they don't preserve as well. They get squished. Ah, that's another reason why we know it was a bird, because they're hollow bones. Uh, yes. Ah, okay. And in the case of the Aramborgiana, the bones are shaped to... The neck bone is shaped in a way that implies that it was evolved more to manage the up and down stress okay it's sort of slightly slightly oval i think it was which implied that it also could then carry that big head and also pick up prey and still fly with it cool all from the two foot long piece of rock what's that you've got a bone yeah what's it from then i don't know bird probably how do you know that well it looks like a bird doesn't it Does it? Yeah. Well, how come? But an old birds have bones, don't they? I suppose so. Well, what's that you got? I got a bone too. Bone? Yeah. What's that of then? Dunno. Bird, probably. 
Bird? Yeah. What bit of the bird? Inside the bird, I reckon. Hmm. Maybe same as my bird. Well, it might be. Let's put our bones together. Alright. Yep. Same bird. So what happened to these guys? They're flying around, having a nice time, and then the uh, Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event occurs. Right. <laughs> it's not good news, obviously. <laughs> the extinction event, no, is so, the giveaway. 66 million years ago, you're an innocent Aramborgiana, chilling out, having a good time. You go, ooh, looks to the sky. What's that light in the sky? It's a shooting star. It's getting bigger Beautiful. and bigger. It's really big. Oh, it's a massive asteroid about 10 to 15 kilometers across, so a nine mile wide okay. rock coming your way. Specifically, it crashes to Earth in Mexico in a place called the Chicxulub Crater. Right. Spelt C H I C X U L U B. So the internet told me that's pronounced Chicxulub. Chicxulub. <laughs> You're right, Shirley. Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm okay, I suppose. Oh, sweetheart. You're feeling down. What's wrong? Well, well, I can't get a date. I don't have any kids. I'm not getting any younger. I don't own my own place. The job's boring. I feel unfulfilled. I've got no purpose in the world. Everything just feels pointless. Oh, but what about your dream of running your own business? Oh, I don't know. That was never going to happen. It would only be a failure. It was all just a pipe dream. Nonsense. Enough of all this. You are a strong, independent dinosaur, Shirley. You don't see it, but lots of other dinosaurs look up to you. You're kind and, and, and caring and, and, and considerate. And you have clever ideas and you are really creative. I... I am? You know you are. Come on, it, it's time you picked yourself up and got going because the world needs you, Shirley. You have got so much to give. You're, you're right. I, I can see that now. It is never too late. Oh, things are going to be different this time. You'll see. That's right. I'm going to set up my business. You do it. I'm going to get myself a home. Go on. I'm going to get that family. Of course you I'm are. I'm going to be someone. That's right. That is the spirit. Oh, and look. A shooting star. Oh, it's a sign. So, unsurprisingly, a nine-mile-wide asteroid crashing into the Earth at high speed makes a big crater. And this crater is about 150 kilometres, 93 miles in diameter, and yeah. about 20 kilometres, 12 miles deep. If you could fly, though, that would be some rad air currents to hover on, to surf the sky. Yeah, you'd have the, a heck of a time the, very for the briefly. Seconds. <laughs> so, so, yeah, what happened? <laughs> Boom. Obviously, the first effect is if you're anywhere near Chicxulub, you're squashed by a massive asteroid. Yeah. Then there's a shock wave and there's debris thrown into the air, which drastically alters the climate. Tidal waves and, I mean, just earthquakes and everything, I'm guessing. Well, yeah. So, in the geological record, you can find the KPG event in rocks all over the world because there's a thin layer of sediment called the kpg boundary uh -huh. you can find it in marine rocks and land rocks and it's basically a, a thin layer of clay or it's a thin layer of gunk i guess yeah. and in it you can find really unusually high levels of iridium which is a metal Ooh. which you don't find a lot in the earth's crust but you can find in asteroids <laughs> no way really. so all of the fossil bearing layers of rock with dinosaurs in are under this debris line basically so that's what they think and also the fossil bearing rock under that line also have been found to contain little tiny bits of glass basically these are called tectites tectites and they're believed to be blobs of basically melted rock that get kicked up by the impact it's so hot they melt then they solidify as glass in the atmosphere and then rain down all over the earth oh my gosh so glass rain add that to your outlook for today oh, <laughs> man so like you get the impression that when the dinosaurs died like you know it was over a long period of time because we've been talking about eons and ages and like you know they might have hung in there for tens of thousands of years or whatever this probably happened within 24 hours the well the the immediate so certainly in the area of chicxulub yes you you're pretty much done there and then the the other side of the planet, you've got a bit of time, but okay. uh, bad things are going to happen to you because the heat and fires spread really throughout the world. And basically, the forests that we said were covering most of the Earth's surface get completely destroyed. There's wow. no, so it's a forested planet and then it's not. 
so how do we know this? This is another one of those things where you go, well, how do you know that? That's crazy. So there's a guy called Antoine Bercovici. He's a paleobotanist at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Okay. Uh, he's, create, he's amassed a load of data, basically, on fossil spore and pollen counts in rocks from all over the world. Mm, like Egon Spengler. Egon collected spores and funguses. That was his thing. Oh, did he? Yeah. I don't even remember that. Crikey. He listed that as one of his hobbies oh. in the film. Wow, that's... Spores and funguses. Spores and funguses. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I don't okay. know why that's stuck in my he head. is like Egon then, so yeah, my apologies, maybe <laughs> he too is a ghost busting on his days off, I don't know. <laughs> so he finds a, a, a spike in the amount of ferns, right? So okay. it basically says, uh, this fern spike represents evidence of disaster flora, so pioneer species rapidly recolonize open ground. So basically, <laughs> the, all of the fire spreads across the world and all of the forests are gone, and the first things to pop back and go, oh, I can take, again, it's the blank space that leaves room for life. Yeah, sure. And the ferns come in and go, right, I'm going to have, have this. this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this happens in lava flows, in uh, volcanic eruptions, just in the modern world. Sure. So you've got woods, the woods is burnt down, and then the ferns are the first thing that pop up. So that's why we think that all the forests were gone and burned down. That's so cool. It's um, amazing that life literally finds a way, right? Uh, it, it's, I mean, the the story of the world has been flourish, destroy, repeat. Expansion and, and contraction. Yeah, it really has. And I, I should clarify that, again, even the stuff about the meteor, some people don't believe the meteor was the extinction event, the cause of the extinction event, and actually there was volcanoes. So other, your I mean, it didn't help. Be. Come on, I mean... Yeah, I have to say that the evidence of the gigantic crater in Mexico and the... The, the layer of really, soot. It was pretty compelling stuff for me, but I'm not an expert. But everyone agrees that 70 to 80% of everything, all the species were destroyed. You can't find dinosaur fossils above the KPG boundary. And that's it for your dinosaurs. They are gone. And that includes our not-quite-bird, Amborgiana. Oh, wow. So, in fact, birds descend from a group of dinosaurs called theropods. Theropods, you may be aware of, are the T-Rex. Oh, cool. And the Velociraptor. <laughs> nice. So... Actually, birds had already evolved. They existed in the time before the meteor landed. There were loads of them. They were all over the place. All the things that make birds birds were already in place well before the mass extinction. Birds were different to pterosaurs. Birds and pterosaurs are different categories of creature. So one of the things to go back to your list, you don't have feathers on a pterosaur, but you would have had feathers on the birds, the early birds of the, the Cretaceous. But there were tons of birds, and there were birds with teeth and birds without teeth. So they weren't all birds as we know them, but they were birds nevertheless. But then when the meteor hit, the birds were by no means uh, excluded from the problems. If you were a big bird, you were probably going to die because there wasn't enough to eat. If you lived in trees, you were probably going to die because the trees all burned down. Yeah. So what survived of the birds that were present during the meteor strike? And uh, Can I make a guess? Yeah, you can. Can I suggest that the minor birds survived because they were underground? <laughs> you can suggest that. <laughs> Dear, oh dear. Well, the bad news is the archaeological record hasn't got much to offer at this time. Bird bones, we've already discussed, are pretty fragile things anyway, and there's not really anything to go on. But we can do modelling and we can do theories and we can see what we can find. And there are some people who are doing this. So here are some of the things that might have enabled your birds to become the birds we know today. Okay. Number one yep. from your list, the beak. The beak. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Ryan Fleece was talking about, when we talk about the the hypothesis of traits that let birds survive, we need to take into account that it's only a small sliver of diversity that made it to the other side. So basically, there were tons of birds, and then there were not many birds at all. Right. And the uh, ones that were left all had beaks. Well, we certainly the ones we have today are, so it seems likely that they all had beaks. And in fact, why would a beak be potentially helpful? Well, the beaked birds were probably already eating a more varied diet than their toothy relatives. Right. So the birds with teeth were probably sticking to insects and creatures whereas the birds with beaks might have been munching on seeds and things one guy i read basically describes the beak as a pair of fingers on the face so they're, they're useful fingers. for rooting out things and ferreting they're allowed to able to pluck up hard food items and penetrate seeds and nuts. i was going to say break stuff down that yeah. you can't quite do with your teeth or whatever exactly so these beaked birds have a, an a ability to perhaps access food that the others can't an evolutionary advantage exactly so you've got these destroyed forests so maybe they can peck through and feed on the seeds that they can find and right. forage out what they can and wait till the vegetation returns. Sure. So a beak is potentially one of the things that will enable you to survive life as a bird. So Derek Larson <laughs> so cool. said, we propose the diet may have been ex an extinction filter and suggest that granivory associated with an edentulous beak, so a beak without teeth, granivory being the ability to eat seeds. So but the, having a beak that can eat seeds was a key ecological trait in the survival of some lim lineages.
languages. But Abigail Tucker, King's College London, says just having a beak is not enough. Now, this is a feature you did not identify. Gizzards. Birds with beaks and powerful gizzards. A gizzard is a kind of a muscular part of the bird's stomach. They right. swallow. They usually swallow stones and things, and they use it to grind up. They grind oh, okay. the food that they eat, so they can eat hard things and smush them up in their gizzard. So the gizzard isn't a stomach. No, it's it's part of the stomach. Then that they, it grinds things before it gets into the exactly, stomach, yeah. like a processing plant. Yeah, a, a, a smusher. A smusher. A smusher. Yeah. Technical term there. So now you're able to eat seeds and crush them up and digest them in a way right. that other birds perhaps can't. That's kind of cool. And then another study also suggested that uh, you mentioned claws. I did. I'll, I'll give you that. Feet. Uh, walking around specifically. So there was a study that basically suggested <laughs> that all the bird groups that survived the end Cretaceous extinction lived on the ground. They were non-arboreal. They didn't live in trees, unsurprisingly, because all the trees got burned down. So this is a, a guy called Daniel Field from the University of Bath. He said, We concluded that the devastation of forests in the aftermath of the asteroid impact explains why tree-dwelling birds failed to survive. The ancestors of modern tree-dwelling birds did not move into the trees until the forests had recovered. Wow. Okay, so all the birds were living on the ground. Yeah, exactly. So today there are okay. uh, nearly 11,000 species of birds. They're the most diverse, globally widespread group of creatures, of terrestrial vertebrate animals, to quote Mr. Field. But only a handful of ancestral bird lineages succeeded in surviving the extinction event. All of today's diversity just came to these few walking around, beaky, gizzardy dinosaurs that mm. were truly the early birds that you might have found in Jordan in the Paleogene. But there we go. So uh, I cheated a little by mostly focusing on the boundary <laughs> with the Paleogene rather than the Paleogene itself. But uh, well, it was a pretty about. significant boundary, wasn't it? It's just astonishing. Like, I mean, I'm still blown away by how big that creature was. It's mind blowing, isn't it? It's just so huge. If it hadn't been for that railway worker, if it had just thrown that bone away, may, you know, maybe they wouldn't have ever found it. So makes it makes you, you wonder what else is out there. There or? must be so many things that have just been just destroyed in. Over hundreds of millions of years, you would expect there to be creatures that would literally blow our brains because they're so crazy looking and they've just disappeared because their bones were weak or... Yeah, and they just... And the fossil record, you know, it takes a very specific set of circumstances to make a fossil. It's not like everything that dies gets a fossil. So I, I just... It is fascinating to wonder what we're missing and what we're not seeing. Well, and even if everything did get a fossil, we're not digging everywhere up to look for them, right? <laughs> we're only looking in very few places. Yeah to find things so i imagine we've only discovered like a percent if that of Must all the creatures that have ever existed has to be tiny what we know compared to what we don't know it's and i guess the, just the void of time has just sucked up all these weird looking creatures that have existed and I, I i love the debates that they have in the paleo world which is you know everyone's so certain that nobody really knows anything it's fascinating Mm. And eventually, maybe we'll get the genes out of them. And then we could have a park of some kind, recreate yeah, some of these animals. It. The paleogene park. Paleo it makes sense. <laughs> I can't imagine why uh, your first draft of that script didn't get picked up. <laughs> it's just got a bunch of little birds walking around going, what happened? Pecking on nuts and seeds. <laughs> but look at their gizzards. <laughs> look, at the, look at the fascinating gizzard. You said giant lizards. No, giant <laughs> gizzards. <laughs> Mom, I want to go home. <laughs> this is rubbish. <laughs> right, well, look, Peter, well done. Really enjoyed that. Well done. Oh, thanks, man. And that was how our scientists recreated the entire species. All from one finger trapped in amber? Yes, we took the DNA and we used it to revive the human being. Welcome to Humanity Park. We have created a number of variants of the species and you'll see them all on this tour. In fact, listen carefully. You can hear the call of the Caronimus. Your car is insanely loud. There are children that live in this neighborhood. My God. It's beautiful. And wait, over there. Is, is that a, a trollosaurus? You killed, Mom! Yes, an adolescent. It's still living in its parents' nest. I hate you and I wish you were never a noise not heard for millions of years. But should you really be playing God? Do you not understand how dangerous this species was? Nonsense. Everything is quite safe here at Humanity Park. We spared no expense. Wait, over there. What is that? Oh my, nobody moved. This is the most dangerous of all the human species. Or manufacturing should be actively encouraged to go to work. Not Politician Saurus Rex. Yes, Politician Saurus Rex. You've brought back 
Politician Saurus Rex. Yes, isn't it wonderful? And when you do go to work, if possible, do so by car, or even better, by walking or bicycle. Clever girl. Damn it! Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Oh, you thought that was bad? We're gonna hate the Veloiraptors. Now I want to see what you're going to get. Shall we consider wheeling out, firing up, and generally utilising the Dursalator? I would do, but the Dursalator has been locked up. It's got a big chain around it, and we can't use it. Instead, in its place, is the Spook Dursalator. <gasps> the Spookalator. The Spookalator. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently we've got to use the spookalator this week oh because my. it's Halloween. It's Halloween. Ooh. Our Halloween special. Ooh. So the spookalator is here. Listen to it. <laughs> okay, you're clanking chairs. You like that? <laughs> <laughs> it's spooky it see? is spooky it's it too spooky, spooky for me <laughs> okay well look the the spooker spookalator <laughs> it works exactly the same as the does later oh great it still gives us a place mm-hmm. uh it gives us a time mm-hmm. and it gives us a topic but the topics of the spookalator ha- are all halloween oriented oh, i see so we're, we hit the button and we'll get still get time place but and topic but but it's going to be a spooky one your place is hell <laughs> <laughs> okay all right well like here we go let's do it okay all right ryan okay. release the human souls into the reservoir all right i'm doing it now Oh, no, I don't oh, like that at all. Oh, dear. All right. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Pull the lever, which I think might be a femur. Yeah, no, I think it is. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Okay. Or it's a two-foot-long bird neck bone. Oh, it could bone. be. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's more comforting. Right, pull the bird neck bone. <laughs> all right, off it goes. And your country is? Yeah. It's South Korea. Oh, nice. That's, okay, South Korea. Spooky place. Okay. Yeah. And your time is? 2020 yeah. to 2025. But, uh, a bit of future. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Spookalator. That's spooky. That is Time travel, I guess, is spooky. <laughs> okay. okay. And finally, my your spooky, spooky topic. Spooky topic is. is Jack O' Lantern. Nice. Jack O' Lantern. Okay, so. Jack o' lanterns in South Korea. <laughs> That's a difficult mix, I'll be honest. <laughs> From 2020 to 2025. The to near 2025. Future. Wow. Okay. I'll get out my glass ball and uh, peer into the future and find the history of South Korean jack o' lanterns. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like a tricky one, but I have every faith in you, sir. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be fine. Yeah, it always is. Spooky, spooky, spooky. All right, and well, look, that is it. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, you can do that and you can reach out to us uh, through social media, through our website at hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. We genuinely love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And one way to definitely feature on a future show is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendations are really valuable for getting us out there to other people, uh, and we want new listeners and you want new friends to talk about the show with, surely. Mm -hmm. So uh, also, if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. So subscribe to us there, and you'll get an alert every time we post one of our little one-minute animated bites. Very good. Um, And you know what? We're going to be back in a week's time with the spook. Spookiest of spooks, Mr. Paul Dursley. Ooh. <laughs> well, I'm scared of him. So. <laughs> 
Uh, and in the meantime, if you can't get enough of the show, uh, if you've not heard some of our earlier episodes, you can go back, you can listen to those. We have a whole back catalogue now of episodes, and you can find that through your podcast app, through YouTube, or you can go to our website, hhepodcast.com, where we have a whole archive of all of our old episodes. All right, so that's it. A huge thanks to Peter. Thanks to you, Ryan. Ah, thank you. And uh, I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Hey, you know you said that we would never know what the next eon would be because, like, we'd have all died out. Well, I know what it will be. I'm a little scared to ask, but go on. Well, you see, the thing is, right, I made a time machine. A time machine? Yeah, and I jumped forward into the future and I had a look. Is that right? Yeah, and I've seen the next eon. Gotcha, yep. Go on then, what is it? I've called it the Peter Eon. The Peter Eon? Yeah. Why'd you call it that? Well... You see, the only thing that lives there is like this really old man and he's got like long hair and, and a white scruffy beard and these crazy wild eyes and he's super old and I like grumpy and, and honestly, I don't think he's like all there. He kept saying stuff like, it's me, Peter, and I'm trapped here. Oh, that's a lovely story, Ram. Is this a dream you had? No, no, no. It's real. I swear. You can go and see it for yourself. Well, well, maybe I will. Why not? Uh, this is this is your time machine, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. You just step in here and uh, you press this and you push that and and you're good. All right, here I go, time traveller, time travelling. Whoa! Oh, wait. Maybe I should have refueled it. Nah, I'd be fine.